0: This message is brought to you by ABC Church in Ammonford, West Wales. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org. So instead, this morning's word is called idolatry and the coming of the Antichrist. (laughs) If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to 2 Kings, chapter 23, and I'm reading from verse 4 to 14. The king ordered Hilkiah with the priest next in rank and the guardians of the threshold to remove all the cult objects that had been made for Baal, Ashrath and the whole array of heaven. He burnt them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and had the ashes taken to Bethel. He did away with the spirit priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed and who offered sacrifice on the high places. In the towns of Judah and the neighborhood of Jerusalem, also those who offered sacrifice to Baal, to the sun, the moon, the constellations, and the whole array of heaven. From the temple of Yahweh, he removed the sacred pole right out of Jerusalem to the Wadi Kidron, and in the Wadi Kidron he burnt it. He reduced it to ashes and threw its ashes on the common burying ground. He pulled down the house of the sacred male prostitutes, which was in the temple of Yahweh, and where the women wore cloths for Ashtoreth. He brought all the priests in from the towns of Judah and from Geba to Bathsheba. He desecrated the high places where these priests had offered sacrifice. He pulled down the shrine of the goats, which stood at the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, to the left as you entered the city gate. The priests of the high places, however, could not go up to the altar of Yahweh in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread in the company of their brother's priests. He desecrated the furnace in the valley of Ben-Himon, so that no one could make his son or daughter pass through the fire in honor of Molech. He did away with the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the temple of Yahweh, near the apartment of Nathan-Melech, the eunuch, in the precincts, and he burned the chariot of the sun. The altars on the roof that the kings of Judah had built were those that Manasseh had built in the two courts of the temple of Yahweh. The king pulled down and he broke them to pieces on the spot, then carried them away and threw their rubble into the wadi Kidron. The king desecrated the high places facing Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Olives, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for ashtoreh the Sidonite abomination, for Chemosh, the Moabite abomination, and for Milcom, the Abominite abomination. He also smashed the sacred pillars, cut down the sacred poles, and covered the places where they had stood with human bones. The Israelites have lost the book of the law, otherwise known as the book of Deuteronomy. How they lost it, I have no idea. It's not like losing the instruction manual for a VCR. But anyway, they've lost it. And then they find it. And there's a prophet they could have gone to to ask, is this book the word of God? The prophet was called Jeremiah. But Jeremiah for years had been prophesying that God was going to destroy Israel. So they'd (coughs) stuck him in a well. So they didn't go to ask him. Instead, they went to ask Huldah, a female prophetess. We don't know much about it. I think she kept her head down because she was scared of being put in a hole in the ground. So they ask her, is this book genuine? And she says, yes. And at that point, they go ballistic. They repent. They try their best to appease God. But you know what? It's too late. The sin of idolatry was so great in Israel that God has absolutely no intention of not punishing Israel. 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 26 to 27 makes it clear. That Yahweh did not renounce the heat of his great anger which blazed out against Judah because of all the sins Manasseh had committed. Yahweh said, I'll turn my back on Judah as I've already turned my back on Israel. I will throw away Jerusalem, the city I've chosen, and the temple of which I said, there will be my name. The only concession he makes is to King Josiah. He says, you will die before I bring this disaster upon Israel. And in fact, in 607 B.C., Josiah is killed at the first battle of Megiddo. The second battle of Megiddo was 1918, when the British kicked the Turks out of the Middle East, laying the way for the creation of the state of Israel. The third battle of Megiddo is actually called, in the book of Revelations, Armageddon. And by the end of this preach, you'll know we're closer to that than we've ever actually been. Can you accept the idea of a god who is so angry at the people he loves for the sins they've committed that he will destroy them. I think people today in the world we live in find that very, very difficult to believe because we've created God in the image of our desires and wants. He is a cross between an ATM and Santa Claus, but he's neither. He is Yahweh, God of Israel. Jesus Christ is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And Jesus says many good things in the New Testament. It was also Jesus that said these words in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I bring peace and create evil. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Can you conceive of a God who can both love and hate? A God who can give and take. In the day we live in, I don't think most people can. But the simple fact is this. Three of the Ten Commandments are against idolatry. God hates idolatry with a real passion. And sometimes a sin can be so great, even if forgiveness is given following repentance, still punishment has to fall upon that person. What Israel had done, it committed a terrible sin. It had turned its country and its religion into an idol. Instead of saying, we worship you, Lord, because you've chosen us, they ended up worshiping themselves. Because they felt that they were special people. And therefore, because God loved them, they could do whatever they wanted to do. And boy, were they going to get a big awakening. An idol says more about the person who worships the idol than the idol itself. Why? Because the idol reflects the sin in ourselves. And there are two different types of idol. There's personal idols that are unique to ourselves. Could be a husband... Unlikely in my case, but still possible, could be your wife, could be your children, could be your money, could be your career. The key thing with an idol is this you cannot live without it. It gives you the sense of security you need to live your life. And that is such an important part of your life, you will sacrifice anything to it. If your husband is your idol, do you know what? Even if he domestically abuses you, you will still stick by him. Even if he is violent towards your children or sexually abuses your kids, you will still stick by your idol you will sacrifice whatever you need to to your idol if your career is your idol you'll sacrifice your children to that career and the strange thing with idols is this they all fall but in the Old Testament there was one idol that fell but his feet remained even after the idol has fallen you know what the feet can remain upon you pressing on you that abusive man used to know he still dominates your life that money you lost you still long to get it back but we're not going to talk about personal idols this morning. We're going to talk about public idols, idols that are collectively worshipped. And this brings me on to one of the strangest people in the world today, Donald J. Trump. He has been described as having a face like a novelty jug made in a pottery class by inmates of a secure unit. He's also been described as looking like an actor playing the part of the president in a porn movie. He really is a bit of a cartoon character. Four times bankrupt. Some people say he's worth $4.5 billion. Other people say he's a billion dollars in debt. He certainly hasn't paid tax for 12 years. Currently being prosecuted for creating a charity to fund his political campaign. Just after he was elected, he had to settle a $25 million claim over Trump University, which wasn't a university. He boasts about sexually assaulting women. He sees a preteen girl on an escalator and talks about having sex with her when she's older. He actually said that if Ivanka wasn't his daughter, he would date her. This is dark stuff. He has abused Muslims, Mexicans, women, the disabled, veterans. He's been involved in 3,500 legal disputes. The bizarrest legal dispute was when Bill Maher, stand-up comedian, said that uh, Trump's father was an orangutan. Okay? It's a joke. What did Donald Trump do? He took him to court. His lawyers turned up in court with his father's birth certificate to show that his father was not an orangutan. (laughs) This is strange stuff. He said he could go into Times Square and shoot people dead with a revolver and still win the election, which is probably his campaign slogan for the next election. All politicians lie. There are groups that actually analyze the amount of lying that politicians say. Hillary Clinton, like most politicians, lies about 20% of the time. They lie about things that they say they have done that they haven't and things that they haven't done that they have. Donald Trump lies 75% of the time. He is a pathological liar. That means he lies when he doesn't have to. In fact, they've had to invent a new term to describe the Trump era. It's called post truth Post-war, the war was over. Post-truth, there's no more truth. It's all lies. He is a strange man. He calls himself a Presbyterian Christian. But like Jesus, he has said, he's never had to ask God for forgiveness. He does suffer from narcissistic personality disorder, which means he is genuinely mentally ill. He boasts all the time. He's the best at everything. And he takes offense all the time. He has so far issued 35,000 tweets. He's in a Twitter war at the moment with the leader of North Korea. He is literally a man of lawlessness because he doesn't believe that the law applies to him. And yet, he was elected by evangelical Christians in America. Even John MacArthur supported him. His religious guide is Paula White. In 2014, in a survey, American evangelicals said that 70% of them said that moral character was essential for a man to be elected president. By 2016, that had dropped to 25%. What had happened between the two dates? Donald Trump had happened. Donald Trump represented something in evangelical American Christians that they wanted, and so they were willing to lower their moral standard to accommodate him. Among non-Christians, guess what? 55% of them consistently say moral character is important to be the president of the United States of America. Non-Christians in America are more moral today than evangelical Christians. And those are all the good things I can say about Donald Trump. There is something really terribly bad, and that's the alt-right, the extreme neo-fascist right in America. Now, I don't know if we've got a 20-second video that we can show here, yay or nay, nay it's not going to happen okay then the outright in america okay there's a video clip you can see on youtube they get together after the election and they start saying what is there a thumbs up there go go for it brother go for it hail trump hail our people hail victory <laughs> Great, that's all we need. Fascist salutes, hail Trump. Now, Donald Trump said nothing to do with me. I don't believe in the out Trump and the outright. Okay. However, the voice for the outright is Bret Baier News, and the leader of Bret Baier News used to be a chap called Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon was the architect of the Trump victory. He is currently the chief counselor to Donald Trump. Okay. Slight contrast there between Donald Trump's words and his behavior. On the 18th of November of last year, Steve Bannon in an interview said this, and I quote, Darkness is good. Satan, that is real power. It only helps us when they are blind to who we are and what we're going to do. You think of it. Donald Trump is going to make a decision. To his left, he has Paula White. She's whispering in his ear, rebuild the temple, Donald while blow-drying his hair. On his right, <laughs> he has Satan saying, rebuild the temple, Donald. What is Donald going to do? I tell you what, we are in a dark area with this man. He has a gift. He has the ability to manipulate the masses. And do you know what? Here is a guy, right, who, if he understood the American people, He knew that actually probably most people would vote for Hillary rather than for himself. But he also knew that the evangelical Christians held the key seats. So he had to appeal to them to get elected. And if the American evangelical people were filled with love and compassion, he'd put a flower in his ear and pretended to be a hippie. But he knew that the American evangelical right have a great fear of black people, of immigrants, of Arabs, of women, of science... And so what did he do? He delivered a message of hate and division directly to appeal to them. The church put Donald Trump in power. And the idol, the idol in America is not Donald Trump. The idol is America itself. Just as Israel came to worship itself rather than worshiping God, American Christians have come to worship their country rather than Jesus Christ. And this is something that goes all the way back to the beginning of that nation. The idea of manifest destiny, the idea that God has his hand on America and has taken them forward to a glorious future. The idea of America first, a slogan that Donald Trump used. It's actually a fascist slogan from the 1930s. And think of the American flag. When our flags get worn, we put them in a bin. But under the American legal code, the American flag is a living thing. And therefore it has to be disposed of as a living thing. So every year about 60,000 American flags are given to the Boy Scouts of America who ritually incinerate the flags and then bury the flags in sacred ground. It's the ultimate symbol of idolatry that America has actually come to replace Jesus Christ in their opinions and their regards. Both the idolatry of Israel and the idolatry of America represent one important thing. The opposition between religion and spirituality. Jesus did not come to create Christianity or reform Judaism. He came to abolish religion and replace it with a relationship. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse thirty says this. I will write my law on their hearts. God speaking to the Jewish people about the coming of a new covenant for the Jewish people. Jesus' brother in James chapter 1 verse 27 says this. Pure and spot religion in the eyes of God our Father is this coming to the help of widows and orphans when they need it, and keeping oneself pure from the world. Being pure as an individual, living a pure life, and blessing people, that is our faith, that is our religion. No special days, no special foods, no special places. It's really, really simple. However, religion is such a powerful idol that God gave it a special name in Scripture. He calls it the Whore of Babylon, mentioned in chapter 18 of the book of Revelations. And this is what chapter 18, verses 4 to 5 says. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so you do not partake of her sins, and so receive the plagues that I will release upon her. For her multiple sins have reached up to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. What is interesting about the whore of Babylon is that it contains true believers. Otherwise, God wouldn't be calling them out. Now, there's nothing new in this, Okay. Uh, the reformers in the Reformation identified the Roman Catholic Church as the Whore of Babylon. And that's the reason why they left. They tried to reform it. That's why it's called the Reformation. They failed. They had to leave and set up new churches. Nothing new in that. In fact, the idea that the Roman Catholic Church is the Whore of Babylon goes back before the Reformation. An Irish bishop by the name of St. key said in a series of prophecies written in the 12th century, that when the 112th Pope comes, God would destroy the Roman Catholic Church by bringing judgment upon it, and he would destroy the church that sits upon the seven hills of Rome. I don't know if that's a genuine prophecy or not, because it ain't in the Bible, but you know what? The current Pope is the 112th Pope. Who will destroy the idol of religion? It's the Antichrist. That's why the Antichrist is coming. God sent the Assyrians to destroy Israel. He is sending the Antichrist to destroy the whore of Babylon, called the man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. The beast allowed to speak boastful and blasphemous things, chapter 13, verse 5 in Revelation. A man with a mouthful of boast, Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. And the reason God is doing this is contained in some verses in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. Because they would not accept the truth that could have saved them, God will send them a powerful deception so that they will believe a lie. Then all those who have not believed the truth will be eternally damned because they delighted in unrighteousness. The great risk in the last days is this. The danger is that Christians, instead of opposing the Antichrist, will embrace him because he reflects the sin in themselves and gives them permission to live lives that they want to live rather than the lives that they should live. And when you look at the United States of America, idolatry is writ large. And it comes in one little formula, the law of attraction. 1937, Israel Regardé, member of the world's most infamous occult group, the Golden Dawn, a friend of, a follower of, and a biographer of Alistair Crowley, the man who called himself the Beast, success. In 1937, Israel Regardé wrote this book, the Art of True Healing, and the Operation of the Law of Attraction. In 1952, Norman Pearl, an American preacher, rebranded that book with a new title, calling it The Power of Positive Thinking. When the book was launched, almost all the American preachers, teachers, and theologians condemned the book as being unbiblical and ungodly. It didn't make a hapeth of difference. The teaching was so persuasively powerful, it was adopted by the vast majority of American preachers and teachers. And today, almost every American preacher preaches a formal version of the law of traction. It's an old witchcraft teaching. It's part and parcel of the Christian science movement. And it is a powerful false doctrine. People like Oral Roberts, Joel Osteen, Crafro Dollar, Terry Savelle Foy, Mike Murdoch, Reverend Ike, Kenneth Hagen, Jim Baker, Benny Hinn, Bruce Wilkinson, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, T.D. Jakes. They're all followers of it and they're all teachers of it. They stand in contrast to the true men of God in America. People like John Piper, John MacArthur, Tim Keller, Rick Warren, Albert Mohler. Those are traditional, mostly Presbyterian and Calvinist preachers. They all believe in Presbyterian governance in churches. That means that the presiding elder, whether he's called a minister or a pastor, is accountable to a group of elders. That's the system we have here. Phil Morgan is the presiding elder. We call him the pastor. He is accountable to a group of elders. So that means if Phil goes insane and says that we should start worshipping goats, guess what? The eldership will say, hold on, what's that goat doing next to the communion table? Hopefully they will sort him out, okay? That's the biblical model of running a church. Most of the people I've mentioned there don't have churches. They have shows. They don't have Presbyterian governance. Joyce Meyer doesn't have a church. She has an audience. T.D. Jakes. People have said to me, oh, I like T.D. Jakes. I like what he says. Yeah, of course you do, because he speaks to the sin in you. He doesn't believe in the Trinity. He doesn't believe in the Council of Nicaea. He doesn't believe in the Nicene Creed. He's from a oneness Pentecostal Heretical group. And yet he appeals to the sin in you, so you like him. Crefro Dollar asked for $60 million from his congregation to buy a new aeroplane. Do you know it costs 50 quid to heal a blind child in the third world? You have a choice this morning. You can either buy your pastor a $60 million plane, or you can heal, give sight to 1.2 million children in the third world. What are you going to do? What would Satan do? I tell you, these people are crooks and yet we like them because do you know what? They encourage us in idolatry and we love having sin encouraged and given a kind of religious blessing. When the word of God comes to you, it challenges you and it changes you, it convicts you and it makes you a better person. These people keep people the same. If America has a problem with idolatry, we in Britain have a problem with apostasy. Just a few weeks ago, in an Anglican church in Scotland, in a morning service, they decide to read out a bit of the Koran. Now, by and large, I'd say you shouldn't re- read out other people's religious books on a Sunday morning in a church. But do you know what? There's bits of the Koran you could have read out that were okay. The bit they chose to read out says this, Far be it from the all-merciful to have a son. On a Sunday morning in an Anglican church, they said this, Jesus is a liar. Jesus is not the Son of God. Seriously? We are in the age of apostasy. The Archbishop of Canterbury, who I am very disappointed in, I must admit I was expecting more, he has told Protestants that they should, what, ask for forgiveness for the Reformation. Hold, hold on, what? We're supposed to ask for forgiveness? That's like asking a woman who has left her abusive husband to apologize for breaking up the family. We left the Catholic Church because they wanted to burn us all to death like they did with Jan Hus and Tyndale. We had to leave. We had no choice. But seemingly, it's our fault for believing in the gospel rather than following the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. We've just found out the other week that when he was a young man, he worked with and remained friends with a sadistic member of the Anglican Church who beat children mercilessly Eight kids were subjected to 14,000 beatings. When the Anglican church found out about it, they sent him off to Zimbabwe, where he was then charged with the murder of a 16-year-old child, a charge that was later dropped. But, you know, basic rule of life. If you can't tell the difference between a man of God and a sadist, you really shouldn't be the Archbishop of Canterbury. Get somebody else to do that job. But it gets worse. You know, I've never been a fan of the NIV Bible translation. A third of the Bible is poetry. The NIV on the whole doesn't have a poetic insight into the word of God, but fine, most people use it. I would advise you not to use the latest version, called today's uh, NIV. reason why? It's become gender neutral. They've decided to get all those references to men out of the Bible in case it causes offense to people. So Genesis 127, which says, And God made man in his image, now says, And God made humankind in his image. But it doesn't say that in the Word of God. The Word is actually Adam. What gives them the authority to change the gender in the Bible? It could be worse, though. One university in Britain has said that we should remove all references to father and son from the Bible so as to be more inclusive. You lose your father, you lose the son. What is going on here? could be worse, though. In Westcott House last month, a group of novice Anglican priests decided to have their usual service, but to use gay names for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I can't mention those names this morning, because they're blasphemous. And Jesus said, blasphemy against the Father and blasphemy against the Son will be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can never be forgiven. The blood of Jesus Christ does not avail against blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And yet... The novice priests and the congregation said the words describing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in that way. Scripture says this, they are damned. Whatever they do for the rest of their lives, they are damned. There was a canon, Simon Butler, one of the chief leaders of the Anglican Church. When he found out about this, he said, it's a source of learning. Oh, I see. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the age of apostasy is a source of learning. Those novice priests will go on to take congregations. Seriously? What is the word of God? Come out of her, my children, lest you be condemned along with their sins, along with their iniquities which rise up to heaven. This whole culture of political correctness, it's not just in the churches everywhere. The BMA has just written new guidance for doctors that they should stop referring to pregnant mothers and pregnant women. Why? In case it causes offense to transgendered men. Am I alone in thinking the world is going mad and that the lunatics have taken over the asylum? The guy who wrote Fight Club, the book, which became a film, he was so annoyed at millennial students demanding a safe space at university so they don't have their ideas confronted by the truth that he actually quoted a line from his book. You are not special. You are not a unique and beautiful snowflake. I love those words. Every night when I put my head down on my downy pillow, my wife whispers those words in my ear. Ian, you are not special. You are not a unique and beautiful snowflake. And I turn to her and I say, turn that smile upside down, love. And then she says, Ian, sometimes when you look into the abyss, the abyss looks back. At which point I say, I think I'll sleep in the other bed tonight. You have no idea what I have to put up with at home. But you know what? All of this liberal left nonsense, we get angry about it, don't we? But it's just a left fist tapping us on the face. And as a result, what happens then is that we have a tendency to turn to the extreme right. And the extreme right then knocks us out. But we've got to understand, the liberal left and the extreme right are just the left and right fists of Satan. He is trying to get us to lose our freedom and to lose our souls and to lose our faith. And in so many cases, he is succeeding Idolatry in America, apostasy in Britain. These things are real. Now let's move on to the coming of the Antichrist. Numbers are important to God, particularly the number of seven. From the seven days of creation in Genesis 1 to the 54 mentions of seven in the book of Revelations. The number seven is associated with an act of completion by the Holy Spirit. And 2017 is a very special year. It's the year of four significant anniversaries. On the 31st of October, we will celebrate the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation in 1517, when Martin Luther nailed up the 95 Thesis and began a period of conflict in Europe that lasted 140 years and killed 25% of the population of Europe. But it led to the modern world in which we live. On the 11th of December, we have the 100th anniversary of the British liberating Israel and liberating Jerusalem from the Muslims. On the 29th of November, we have the 70th anniversary of the founding of the State of Israel in 1947. On the 7th of June, we have the 50th anniversary of the Jews recapturing the old city of Jerusalem in 1967. This is also, therefore, the year of Jubilee for the State of Israel. In fact, those last three dates have a strange mathematical relationship of 1.4. I'm not quite sure what that means, but I think it might be significant. In the Jewish calendar this year is 5,777. Not only that, we know that whoever Donald Trump is, he's part of God's plan. Why? Because the distance between the date of his birth and the day of his inauguration is 70 years, 7 months, and 7 days you know what? If you keep on throwing the dice and it keeps on coming up number six, you know the dice is loaded. When you see these sevens rolling out, you know what? There's a hand behind it, a hidden hand. It is the hand of the Holy Spirit. 2,000 years of history and scripture are coming together to make 2017 a very special year. Oh, and by the way, did I mention the new star of Bethlehem? Maybe I forgot about that. That was announced on, guess when? The 7th of January, 2017. The Feast of Epiphany. Epiphany in Greek means revelation. It is the feast of the three magi coming to see Jesus. Astronomers decided to announce on that date that in 2022, a red nova would appear in the sky in the constellation of the Northern Cross. 1,800 years ago, a binary star collapsed in on itself. And that light has been winging its way towards us. And in 2022, it'll appear as the brightest star in the sky, The importance of it is that it will appear in the northern cross. That's why it's being called the new star of Bethlehem. Does this herald the birth of the Antichrist? Or the coming of the Antichrist? Or does it herald the return of Jesus Christ? Because Jesus said, Matthew chapter 24 verse 30, Look up. When you see the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens, look up for your deliverance is near. This is not an insignificant event. Luke chapter 21 verse 25 says, When you see the signs in the stars, you know that Jesus Christ is returning. We know that Apophis, the uncreator Egyptian serpent deity, a mile-wide asteroid, is going to wing its way through our atmosphere on Friday the 13th, 2029. And we know it's going to come back seven years to the day, 13th of April 2036. And it may or may not impact the earth at that time. That seven-year difference, do you know what? That's significant because it's mentioned in Daniel, the Antichrist will make a covenant with many for seven years and halfway through will break it off. Signs in the stars. Signs on the earth. Signs in politics. Signs everywhere. Be aware of the signs. Are you ready to live in the last days? Because it may be that they begin this year. The paradigm has changed. Everything you thought you knew about the church, do you know what? It no longer applies. This year we may leave history and enter prophecy. We may step into the pages of the book of Revelations. Before when you looked into the abyss, the abyss looked back. Now the abyss is going to open up on the earth. Revelation chapter 9 verse 1 says this, And I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key of the abyss. And he opened the abyss, and there arose smoke as the smoke of a great furnace. The demonic is not just going to come out of the ground. It's coming down from the sky as well. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 and verse 12 says this. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, but the dragon prevailed not, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, the old serpent called devil and Satan, who has deceived the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels with him woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea for the devil is come among thee and he is filled with great rage because he knows that he hath but a short time is the church ready for this challenge is it ready heck when i look at the church in britain and america i think of the british and french armies in 1939 they were the biggest armies in the world and the best equipped The Germans had a small army, poorly equipped, and they wiped the floor with us in six weeks. Why? Because the British and the French were fighting the First World War, but things had changed. It was a new era. We as a church, and I'm talking about the church in the Western world, we have to rethink what we do and why we do it. We have to adapt to a new age. When I used to work with the police, we would target Harden victims' homes to make sure that the people that wanted to hurt them couldn't. We have to target, harden ourselves and our churches to survive in this new era. And the problem we've got is this. The unspiritual cannot fight powerful spiritual forces. And we have become unspiritual. That's the big problem with the law of attraction and apostasy. We have become social. We have ceased to be spiritual people. In Revelation chapter 13, we're told that two beasts will come. Chapter 13, verse 1 says this. I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Verse 11 says, I saw another beast come out of the earth with two horns like the lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Two beasts, two different people. They're human beings. The one comes out of the sea, normally regarded as politics, the sea of chaos. The other comes out of the land. The first beast is a loud-mouthed, boastful, larger-than-life, demonic-type character. And the second beast is a Christ-like lamb, a deceiver whose authority, like Hitler's, comes from the power of his speech. Let me give you three signs, three signs to look for mm-hmm. that will identify Donald Trump as the first beast of revelations. I'm not saying yes. I'm just saying if these signs occur, then guess what? Hold on to your hats. The first sign is this. This year, he'll probably go to Israel. He said he's going to move the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He will probably go to Jerusalem. He'll probably go to the Wailing Wall. Most politicians do. If while he's there in the excitement of that moment, he says that America is committed to rebuilding the Jewish temple, that will be the first sign. The second sign is this. The Palestinians will go apoplectic, okay? But if he is able to achieve a reconciliation between the Palestinians and the Jews, possibly by persuading the Palestinians to accept Jewish um, statehood, then guess what? A key part of the prophecy will be fulfilled. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 11 says this. Israel will live without walls in the last days. Well, Israel is surrounded by walls. It's got a ginormous wall between itself and the Palestinians. If he brings reconciliation between those two groups, that will be the second sign. And the third sign, somebody shoots him. Somebody puts a bullet in his head, but he doesn't die. When John is looking at the future and he sees the first beast being shot, he's amazed that the beast doesn't die. But the beast leaves the scene. He isn't involved in anything. And we know that people with serious head wounds can go into comas and be kept alive. But guess what? They're no longer able to operate. The third sign is that somebody shoots him and he doesn't die. There is a fourth sign, but you don't have to look out for that, because it's already happened. And that is that he'll be proclaimed as the Messiah by the Orthodox Jewish people. That might seem weird, but you've got to understand this. The Jews don't regard the Messiah as being the Son of God. The Messiah is a person who may or may not be Jewish, who saves Israel. And have we got the first picture there? Are we able to see that? Can we see the top of it? There we are. Israeli settlers hail the coming of the Messiah Donald. So the fourth sign has already been achieved, guys. Uh, You don't need to have to look out for it. It's weird. The uh, Orthodox Jews are hailing him as Messiah. But guess how non-Christians view him. Could we see the second picture? Could we move it up a bit so you can see the other words? Perhaps not. Anyway, this is an American newspaper hailing him as Antichrist. We can keep that up, actually, because it looks quite pretty, doesn't it? (laughs) Of course, if none of these things happen, then, okay, he's not the false messiah. He's just a naughty boy. But that doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet. The people that keep the doomsday clock moved it 30 seconds closer to midnight on the day after the inauguration. These people, right, these scientists, they were originally the guys who built the atom bomb, the Manhattan Project. They introduced the doomsday clock in 1947, significant year, founding of the State of Israel. They put the clock at 15 minutes to midnight. It's been closer than it is now. 1953, they moved it to two minutes to midnight when the Yanks and the Russians detonated hydrogen bombs. Up until then, an atom bomb could only kill 100,000 people. After it, a nah, hydrogen bomb could kill 10 million. At the moment, it is... Two and a half minutes to midnight. That's the second closest it's ever been. Interesting how the scientific community realizes how dangerous this is, this man is, and how the Christian community in America doesn't seem to understand that danger. The terrible thing is, there's a good chance there will be war in the next four years. Steve Bannon, advisor to the president, said in 2014 there will be war between America and China between the next five and ten years. He's now in a position to make it happen. China's been tweaking America's nose for ages, building big bases in the Pacific. Obama just laid down and took it. Trump won't. The more Trump is thwarted in his domestic policy at home, the more likely he will be to engage in adventures overseas in order to establish his credibility and his power. Second point of contact likely be Korea They've got the bomb. They said they're going to build a missile. They'll drop the bomb on the west coast of America. Don't be surprised if Donald blows up that missile on the launch pad. Whether that will cause war between the North and South Korea, who knows. The most likely point of conflict is Iran. Obama green-lighted the Iranians building the atom bomb in about 10 years' time. Don't be surprised if Donald Trump destroys the underground shelters where the bombs are being constructed. To do that means using nuclear bunker busting bombs. The Yanks have two, the B eighty three and the B sixty one. They're powerful weapons. No one in their right mind would ever use a nuclear weapon to stop another nation acquiring nuclear weapons. But Donald Trump is a man out of control. Don't surprise if he don't be surprised if he does it. If that were to happen, the Iranians would go ballistic, but there's not a lot they can do. But do you know what? the Arabs would hail Trump as a hero because they hate the idea of the Shia, heretical Iranians getting the bomb. And in Israel, even the LGBT community in Tel Aviv would praise him as the Messiah because that process in Iran where they're building the bomb is like the sword of Damocles over Israel. And the interesting thing is, when you look at the book of Revelations... You see Israel beautifully depicted. Chapter 12, verse 1 says this. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. The Roman Catholic Church claims that this is the Virgin Mary, but it's not. It's the same image that is given in a vision to Joseph. It is Israel. And in the book of Revelations, everything gets turned upside down. For the last 2,000 years, the Jews have been subject, subjected to persecution after persecution. But in the last days, Israel will be protected. In fact, Israel will be given the wings of an eagle and protected in the desert for 42 months. It's interesting, the symbol of America is an eagle. Is God saying that America will protect Israel from the dragon? Chapter 12, verse 17, and 13, verse 7 says this And the dragon the devil, was unable to hurt the woman, Israel, and instead went to make war on her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And it was given unto the beast to make war on the saints and overcome them. Everything is turned upside down in the book of Revelations. The church is going to suffer persecution and Israel will be protected. Why? Well, the Antichrist can't hurt Israel but he can persecute the church. And the reason why God is going to allow that is because that will separate the bride of Christ from the whore of Babylon. If you, if you are only allowed to worship God on a Sunday morning by accepting certain criteria that denies the truth of Jesus Christ, that leads to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you will leave. The separation between the bride and the whore is essential because then something extraordinary happens. The Antichrist turns on the whore of Babylon. Revelation chapter 17 verse 16 says this, The beast will turn against the whore and strip her naked and then eat her flesh and burn her remains in the fire. It is God who influenced their minds to do what he intended. Persecution purifies, but it also lays bare the idolatry that God so hates. These are the three signs that you will lose your salvation in the last days. One, if the Bible is just a band-aid to cover the weeping wound of your life, you will lose your salvation. The real test in the last days is this. People will turn apostate to save their lives or perhaps even to save what they regard as being a life of worship. We are meant to be a hospital. The church is meant to be a place where you go to get healed. We are not a hospice. You don't come here to die. And the Holy Spirit wants to heal you. But some people won't allow the Holy Spirit to heal them. Some people, do you know what? They cling on to their illnesses and their sicknesses. Why? Because being a victim in your own eyes makes you totally irresponsible. You can just do whatever you want to do. And in fact, you can be filled with narcissistic rage when people don't recognize that you're a victim. Scripture says, by his stripes we are healed. Why do people stop the work of the Holy Spirit? Because then they don't have to carry other people if they can't carry themselves. The lion in the savannah picks off the weak animals. That's why you won't survive, because you've kept yourself purposely weak. You're like a kid that picks that scab and doesn't allow healing to take place. Second reason why you lose your salvation, the church is a substitute for Christ. How often do we hear people say, I love my church? How often do you hear people say, I love Jesus Christ? The trouble is, the church can become a substitute for Jesus in the same way Israel became a substitute for God and the USA has become a substitute for the American church. The church is just the collection of believers who are redeemed by Christ and are looking forward to a life of glory with the Lord, okay? Don't worship the church. Worship Jesus Christ. He is our God and our Savior. And finally... The third reason why you might lose your salvation in the last days, you're not a spiritual person. All your desires and interests are social and materialistic. Look, all close relationships have a private world, whether it be close friends or lovers or husband and wife. It has a public face. You see couples shopping and in church and in the restaurant, but their real world is private. Your real spiritual world is private. It's just you and Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? When you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and there in secret, God will reward you in secret. Jesus defined hypocrisy as somebody who prays in public and doesn't pray in private. You can only be a strong person by developing a private prayer and devotional life with God, with the Holy Spirit, with Jesus Christ. This is our public expression of that. But if this is all you have, then you have very little it has to be an expression of an inner relationship and a private one now your response to this morning's word could be twofold first of all you might say ah <laughs> and secondly you might say cool i'm in the cool camp if you said ah then maybe guess what you were sold a dud when you became a christian maybe you were sold a change in lifestyle rather Than the prospect of eternal life. In which case, I advise you to review yourself and your relationship with God, okay? Nothing in this world is going to last. It's all going to pass. And it's a short life, I tell you that now. I'm nearly 60 years of age. I am amazed I've managed to live this long. I never thought I'd get beyond 30. In fact, I'm surprised when I get to Friday. It really is an extraordinary life. And you might say to yourself, do you know what? I didn't have to be here this morning, I could have been in leaks clutching a cold cup of coffee to my chest, waiting for the shadow of the angel of death to fall on me, (laughs) while looking at a carpet that was last seen in the Overlook Hotel. And you're probably saying to yourself, I wish I had actually gone there this morning. There are alternatives. But to be honest, when Jesus said to his disciples, do you want to leave me as well? They said, where can we go? You have the words of life. The words of life are in this book. In the New Testament in particular, but in the book, my goodness... You will live a better life in this life than you would ever live in any other way, either in or out of our faith. But it is about eternal life. Is there good news in this message? Well, actually there is. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, As it was in the days of Noah, shall it be with the coming of the Son of Man. Noah did not drown. His family did not drown. God told him to build an ark. Your ark is your life. God will not build it for you because He didn't build Noah's ark, but He gave Noah the instructions to build that ark, and He has given us the instructions to build a life that will float, regardless what storms come. How is your ark building going on? What stage are you at? Some Christians have been in the faith 30 years. They haven't even cut the wood yet to build the ark. Others have been building the ark in accordance with blueprints that are outside of the Bible. Guess what? Your ark will not float. Others have mixed biblical teaching with non-biblical teaching and they have an ark and it looks okay, but you know what? It will not survive a storm. You've got to build in accordance with the Word of God. And if you do that following God's blueprint, you will have a life that is Christ-like and you will survive whatever happens. Nothing can undermine your faith and nothing can take away your life when you are standing on the rock of Christ and you've built a life in accordance with the Word of God. George Smith, 1872... Digging in Nineveh, found a cuneiform tablet. He telegraphed back to London. When he got back to London, the Prime Minister was there. The House of Lords, the House of Commons, they were all there to meet him. What was on the cuneiform tablet? The oldest description of the building of an ark, a thousand years older than the Bible. It was extraordinary. It was extraordinary because the instructions were actually about building a coracle. Do you know only three people in the world build coracles? One, the Iraqis, two, the Welsh, three, the Mandan Indians in America. And there is a connection between the three because we as a people originally came from the Middle East. We lived between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And when uh, people first went to America, they met the Mandan Indians. And the story is they were speaking Welsh. Strange story, maybe true. They claim to have come across the sea on a big boat. We know that Prince Madoc left Ceredigion in the 12th century. Like many people have been leaving Ceredigion ever since... And he sailed across the ocean. Three peoples that build coracles. Three peoples that build arcs. You have no excuse for not building an ark. You're descended from people who invented the ark. This morning, guess what? One way to look at this morning, it's a conference of boat builders. We encourage each other to build a better boat, a boat that will float, a boat that can survive in the last days. Jesus Christ told the disciples. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, run to the hills. A.D. 70, the second destruction of Jerusalem occurred. The disciples at that time were obedient and they left the city and a million Jews died in that city. It was their obedience to the words of Jesus that saved them and it will be the obedience of you to the words of Jesus Christ that will save you, nothing else. And if you feel like giving up at that point, remember the words of Luther. Luther said, if tomorrow I knew the world would end, today I would still plant my apple tree. It's about being faithful to the end. It's about not giving up. And what that means is, right, you do not cease laboring, you do not cease working, you do not cease blessing, and by so doing, you guarantee your salvation. You know, some of us thought we'd end our days in a nursing home being pushed around by a Filipino nurse. And now I really believe that some of us might never taste death. I really believe it. We're not in Kansas anymore. Churchill, at the Mansion House speech in November 1942, said this. Talking about the Second World War, this is not the end, he said. This is not even the beginning of the end. But maybe, perhaps, this is the end of the beginning. That's what I feel about 2017, okay? It's not the end of the world. It's not even the beginning of the end of the world. But maybe it is perhaps the end of the beginning. The beginning that began with a man hanging on a cross in Jerusalem. And will end with that same man standing in Jerusalem with six million Jews on their knees, weeping their eyes out, crying and mourning for one who was pierced, for one like a for an only son. All I can say is now I think we're a little bit closer than we were yesterday. So, as Steve Bannon would say, welcome to the new world order. As our American cousins would say, hail Trump. (laughs) Here's a little video, if we've got it, on the new star of Bethlehem.